www.truthtopower.org. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan. And uh, we air every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, welcome. Our first guest, our guest today is uh, Matthew Baker, who has been a professional licensed NYC tour guide for 14 years. He's the past president of Guides Association of New York uh, City, a past newsletter uh, editor for the National Federation for Tourist Guide Association, and founder president of the Gyanic Apple Awards, uh, honoring the best in New York City as culture makers. He says that every good thing has ever happened to him is uh, because of New York City. We'll be talking a little bit about that soon. Matthew is also a reader and writer of poetry, artistic director of the bi-monthly series Poetry at the Players, a member of the board of the Poetry Society of New York, and the founder and recording artist of the PoetsCorner.blog. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, Vijay. Very glad to be here. Great, great. So I would start the conversation off a little bit about New York City and about... Uh, now, you said, uh, you said to me prior to this, uh, tell us when you moved here and, and what your impression of New York City was then and, and how it's changed over the years. Yeah. Well, I came to New York City when I was 18 years old. I came to go to school. And I always like to say I was 18 years and 78 days old. And when I turned 36 years and 156 days old, I said, that's it. Now I've been a New Yorker for half my life, for more than half my life. And uh, it's truly my home. I'm originally from a tiny, tiny little farm village in southwest Missouri. The most boring place on earth, uh, <laughs> where everyone is white and everyone is Protestant and everyone is conservative and you can't get good Chinese food. Uh-huh. And I ran away from there as fast as I could and came to a place where I can now be a part of the world. I am part of, you know, every cuisine, every music, every language, every religion, every culture. I always say, you want to see the world? Come to New York. The world is here. Uh, and everybody that I get to see on my tours becomes part of that, uh, because whether they are here to live or here for the weekend, you know, they become, you know, a participant in New York City, part of the beat, part of the pace. And that's something I love very much. So, you know, as I said, uh, I thank you for, for mentioning it in the, the introduction that, you know, every good thing that's ever happened to me has been part of New York City. I met my wife here. I had my daughter here. I've discovered my career here and I've grown as a human being here. Things that, you know, when I was 18, I couldn't have cared less about. I suddenly find myself caring very deeply about them because New York City gave me exposure to that part of the world. So that's, you know, something I am forever grateful for. And do you remember, like, when you first came here, what was your impression and how to change? And how, did it change at all? Or has it always been amplified, maybe, and grown? It's an interesting question because, of course, in that moment, you're never thinking about it. Yeah. You know, you, you look at that now in hindsight. Like, well, what, what was I thinking then? You know, being a farm boy. Yeah. Um, I think I was most surprised at how hard it was to get used to right away uh, because I always felt very New York when I was in Missouri. Yeah. And it took me a few weeks in New York to feel out how Missouri I was. Uh, but that's changed. You know, that that just took more time and sweat than I thought it would. Yeah. So I've always said, you know, I have a bit of a skewed perspective when it comes to things because I came to New York, I became a legal adult, and the early 90s were happening all at the same time. So I was never sure which one of those things to attribute the change in my life to like, you know, coming to New York was my first exposure, say to ATMs. Uh, now 
It took me a while to discover that wasn't because I was in New York. That was just because it was the early 90s and ATMs were becoming more of a thing. Uh. You know, cell phones, things like, you know, all these things that, you know, these changes happened in my life at the same time. And I was never quite sure which which of those changes to attribute it to. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I certainly, you know, there's a lot of the city that I take in stride now that I didn't when I, I was first here. And, indeed, I think about that now when I'm on tour because, of course, you know, as someone who is, you know, here sort of to serve as a cultural ambassador uh, for the city to, you know, its visitors, I'm always aware that things that are old hat for me, they're experiencing for the first time. And so working with people who are always new to the city, A, helps the really cool things not become old which is great. I'm I'm never going to be one of those New Yorkers who doesn't care about the Brooklyn Bridge, huh. you know, because I always get to see it through the other guy's eyes and he's seeing it for the first time. So that's never going to become old. And at the same time, it teaches me not to be complacent about things. You know, if we're walking down Wall Street, you know, where some of the, you know, biggest wealth in the world is being traded and there's a homeless guy on the corner that's not going to become like wallpaper to me because the first timers notice yeah. and they ask me about it and it gives me a chance to talk about that contrast and that, you know, so it keeps my eyes open. That's really great. I think that uh, it's true that New York is like the capital of the world. I think I feel like it's really like a snapshot of the world. And whenever I go abroad and people ask me, where are you from? I always say New York as opposed to United States of America. I'm the know? same way. Yeah. Yes, I always say New York. It, it makes me think of um, the movie, and I'm assuming this was true in history, though I don't know. Uh, but in the movie Malcolm X uh, uh, with Denzel Washington, uh, in the sequence where he goes to Mecca. And he's meeting Muslims from everywhere, you know, and some of them are blonde and, you know, some of them are, you know, his own complexion and such. And everyone's saying their names and where they're from. And he doesn't say, I'm Malcolm, I'm from America. He doesn't even say, I'm Malcolm, I'm from New York. He says, I'm Malcolm, I'm from Harlem. Uh, yeah. And I really like that. It's ju yeah. just the same way Brooklynites do. Yeah. You know, here we are in Brooklyn. Uh, and, you know, I know a lot of Brooklynites uh, and I work with a lot who, when they travel abroad, you know, they'll say, I'm from Brooklyn. Now, I live in Queens, and I love Queens, but uh, I'm not quite that locally yeah. patriotic. But I do yeah. say I'm from New York. Yeah, so she says, in my case, I, I grew up in Staten Island, and then I moved to Brooklyn for a little while, and then I moved to Queens. So I, I just say New York City in general, because I feel like my allegiance really is to Every part of the York, city has been home city, at one yeah. point in time. Exactly, yes. exactly. So the only, the only borough I haven't temporarily lived in or lived in for a little while is the Bronx. So it's still a little bit... You got to knock that off the list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's a little undiscovered country for me. But uh, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the movies and uh, movies in New York City. Uh, we were talking a little bit about that prior to the interview. But, uh, you know, what are some movies you think that really capture your vision of New York City? Heavens. Well, again, of course, uh, I think that one of the great things, uh, if not the greatest thing about New York City is its diversity. So I do have to name a few just because no one movie can really capture all of it. Uh, but certainly one that comes to mind, I just mentioned a Spike Lee film. So with Spike Lee on the brain, uh, his first, uh, She's Gotta Have It, yeah. uh, is really, you know, in addition to just having the wonderful energy that, you know, a really talented guy shows his first time at the helm, uh, or girl too, you know, for that matter. Um, but in this case, guy, um, you know, She's Gotta Have It, in addition to being a fabulously unconventional romance uh, that does not judge its leads characters, which is wonderful, 
it's very much about Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. Yeah. yeah it's, it's Brooklyn when it was inhabited by the, you know, the first, you know, the kids who made it cool, so to speak. And there's something really great about that. And so I love the, the you know, Brooklyn, you know, the mid-80s, you know, Brooklyn energy of She's Gotta Have It. Uh, that same year, 1986, uh, a fellow who I know uh, people hear his name these days and immediately cringe uh, but without commenting on that, the quality of his work is extraordinary, and that's Woody Allen. Uh, his movie, Hannah and Her Sisters, really captures the warmth of the New York that I know and love. People often come to New York and view it as a cold city, and it's not, or at least it doesn't have to be. Uh, there is a wonderful desire for New Yorkers to connect with each other that I think is beautifully, beautifully represented uh, in Hannah and Her Sisters. Uh, so that is way high on the list for me. Uh, and especially there is a tour in the middle of it. The Sam Waterston character uh, gives uh, Carrie Fisher and Diane Weist a tour of his favorite buildings in the city. And of course, it includes a lot of my favorite buildings like the Chrysler Building and uh, the Yacht Club. And, you know, it, it leaves out the ones that are super obvious to out-of-towners, but includes the ones that are obvious to New Yorkers. So that's a great favorite of mine. Uh, now, now that we've talked about uh, Spike Lee and Woody Allen, uh, another one of the great New York directors that uh, doesn't get mentioned as often as he should uh, is Sidney Lumet. And, um, of course, Sidney Lumet is probably most famous for his 1970s cop dramas or crime dramas, I should say. You know, Dog Day Afternoon is a famous one. Yeah. And a lot of people put that one high on their list. I like Dog Day Afternoon, but it's not my favorite of his just because it really does only concentrate on one block in uh. Brooklyn, though it's a great – that block does become a great – cross-section of the city, but to echo your experiences of having lived, you know, a little bit of every place, I think Serpico, oh, uh, yeah. you know, another great Al Pacino performance, of course, yeah. uh, certainly, you know, you've got parts of the Bronx and parts of Queens and parts of Brooklyn and parts of Manhattan in the film. And it's wonderful that they don't always mention where they are and they don't have to, because each, you know, part, that was part of Lumet's genius was each borough of the city does have its own visual flavor and Lumet really really captures that and if we're going to round out the sort of you know grand slam of you know famous New York directors for whom the city is a character in their films uh, a gentleman who came up empty-handed last night but certainly has had his share of accolades is Martin Scorsese mm. and trying to pick one Martin Scorsese film is difficult but I think I gotta go with the classical taxi driver uh, yeah. even though it's a far more negative vision of the city a city that I love uh, that the characters in Taxi Driver don't, uh, but it does speak to a time and a place in this city when we were in trouble. You know, the mid-70s were not exactly a great time for our city, and, you know, it's important to remember where we came from in order to know where we're going. Uh, so I give uh, Taxi Driver, and of course the great performances in it, a lot of credit, and certainly it's a vision of the city that's very vivid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I would say on my list too, Dog Day Afternoon and Taxi Driver are up there. So I think those two movies that really resonated with me growing up, like watching them and and thinking about you know both the city, both as both, both the negative aspects of the city and the positive. So kind of reflecting on that and reflecting on how, as you were saying about how you know New York City is both the home of uh, some of the biggest wealth and some some you know best times, worst time kind of thing, and also. The, the revolutionary movement Occupy started in Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, of course, started in New York and, and how the progressive movement, the progressive vision for how we can take back the country from the 1% and 
kind of really, you know, engendered itself into into New York City, you know? Absolutely. And it's a funny thing. You know, I have close friends who were staunchly against uh, the Occupy movement, and I have close friends who were part of the Occupy movement. And, yeah. and what was interesting about that, uh, and I talk about this on tour when we're down there, uh, is when you buy Zuccotti Park, uh, remember that Zuccotti Park is that really uncomfortable hybrid known as privately owned public space. Uh. And the fact that I had friends on both sides of that, you know, aisle, as I often do, because I, I like diversity of philosophy as much as diversity of any other sort. Uh, you know, there are people I agree with and there are people I don't, but I like hearing what they have to say. I said that recently to a colleague. I said, I might fight with what you say, but I still want to hear what, what you say. You know? yeah. And so that's very important to me. So we, we were talking about Zuccotti Park and, you know, it's a fairly common practice. It's not unusual for building developers to go to the city and say, um, you know, we want to build outside of code. I don't mean safety code, of course, and, you know, no one gets to do that, but, you know, outside of certain aesthetic codes uh, that are required, you know, to allow sunlight into the street and things like that. And in exchange for letting us do that, we promise to devote some of our space to uh, public use. And so you see that in terms of public access atriums mm. and, you know, plazas like Zuccotti Park. And of course, the problem then becomes when something like Occupy happens, you have everyone saying, well, this is private property, so they're trespassing, while everyone else is saying, well, it's for public use, so they have every right to be there. And because it's neither public nor private, it's this weird hybrid of the two. Now it's uncomfortable and, and nobody's right, you know, yeah. and it becomes really hard. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why. I think we live in the world where nobody wants to compromise about anything because we've seen where compromise leads. It leads to these weird dichotomies where no one can come out, you know, looking good. Yeah, uh, exactly. and that's it's a sad thing because you know you you want to find ways to to grow together. Yeah, and what are some other areas of New York City that you like to point out to tourists or or like to, um, you know, call attention to that might maybe because uh, this of course this show broadcasts all over the world, so we have. Many people listening to it, although it's very local in some ways, Radio for Brooklyn is also very global. So why don't we go into some other areas of New York that you like to point out and, and appreciate? It's a funny thing. I love Harlem. Yeah. It's the first neighborhood that I had not known at all and fell in love with after I started guiding professionally. And, of course, if I do a walking tour of Harlem, people show up and they take one look at German-Irish me and – you know, I've learned a long time ago that you have to address the elephant in the room. Yeah. And I start by telling him, okay, I see you looking at me and I know what you're thinking. Yeah. And so, yeah, the messenger is flawed, but the message is one I love and that I like to share. And I love the political history of Harlem. I love Adam Clayton Powell Jr. For all of his faults, he was a fascinating man with some of the most immense charisma anyone has ever had. Uh, so I, I really, I love his story. I love Malcolm X, of course. Um, and I love people like Sojourner Truth. And you think, well, wait a minute, what does she have to do with Harlem other than, you know, simply being African? She attended AME Zion Church. Yeah. Yes. And AME Zion is one of the great churches and one of the great gospel choirs, not just of Harlem, but of the world. And so she was a fixture there during her lifetime, uh, once she was in New York. So, I love making that, as you say, you broadcast everywhere. I love making those connections between the parts of the world and the parts even of, of a culture that 
people didn't necessarily know were connected. Uh, on the flip side of all that, there's a downtown tour that I wrote from the ground up uh, that I don't get to give as often as I would like just because it isn't you know requested that often. Uh, but I do an Irish heritage tour. Uh, and that's my personal background. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit more of an appropriate tour guide for that. And again, you, you know, you address that at the beginning. Say, I, I acknowledge this is who I am. This is what the tour is. And, you know, this is why our common humanity, you know, is going to bring it all together. Yeah. And, uh, we start at the Irish Hunger Memorial, which is in the, uh, shadow of the World Trade Center and end at St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, you know, at, um, Mott Street, uh, not the biggie that everyone knows on fifth Avenue. And in between that, we have about three hours worth of strolling. There are people who ask to do it in two, but you know, that's, you know, going to be jogging through a lot of it. You know, it's, it's a stroll. It's not the Bataan death March. Uh, So there's um, a lot of Irish American history in between. And that, that comment that, that I made a second ago about the common humanity, I think is an important one. So I was chatting with a colleague just recently my personal vote, and heaven knows this is something worth talking about now, you know, in our current government, my personal vote for the single most historically significant spot in all of the U.S. is Ellis Island. Mm. And Appropriate. Yeah, very good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one in four Americans can trace at least one grandparent through Ellis Island. One in three can trace some family member through Ellis Island. And people on the other side of the political aisle, you know, love to say, well, the people at Ellis Island came through legally. And I have the chance to point out that what constituted legal immigration at their time was a walk in the park uh, compared yeah. to what constitutes yeah. legal immigration today. And that if you are proposing by saying that, that we should go back to the practices that we had on Ellis Island, I say, great. Three quarters of the people that you've rejected would be accepted under those rules. Yeah. Um, so it's a very important place under any circumstances. And certainly now, especially uh, there's right now a big fight going on in Ellis Island uh, between the National Park Service and professional licensed guides, uh, because for the last uh, not quite a year, but almost a year, uh, they changed the rules where guides are no longer allowed to guide tours of any size, not even for, you know, a party of two people inside the museum at Ellis Island. And the Guides Association of New York City has tried to negotiate various compromises so far with very little luck. Uh, But I've stated that while it's never a good idea, now is certainly not a time that you want the federal government to have a monopoly on the story of American immigration, Mm. uh, especially in the place where it happened. And uh, you hear things like, well, we're worried about overcrowding. And they say this in a room that was designed to accommodate 7,000 people at a time. <laughs> so we're still working on that. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly an important place. And regardless of whether you get to see it with me or one of my colleagues or see it under any circumstances, anyone who hasn't been to Ellis Island definitely should go. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is what we were saying about common humanity. Yeah. Uh, because I was chatting with a colleague about Ellis Island. And he said that, you know, he'll he'll talk about, you know, what a German or an Irishman might go through at Ellis Island. He says, but if I have African-Americans on tour and I know that their ancestors' history was very different, Ellis Island means nothing to them. 
And I said, well, no, don't insult these folks. It's not like they have no empathy or no imagination. Uh You're right. There might not be a direct shared experience, but that would be like saying that the slave trade means nothing to me. You know, of course, it's not my ancestry, but I have an imagination and I have a sense of empathy. Of course, it means something to me. And I believe that that's true for everyone. So, yeah, I don't think that it's impossible for people to understand or appreciate a historical story that doesn't apply to them personally. The tour guide must just have to work a little harder, you know, yeah. so co- compare it to this, you know, if you, you know, now imagine that. And, and once we remember we're all on the same boat, it becomes easier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's very important. I had like uh, some experiences that I've had around the world that visiting sites or visiting certain locations that were, very moving for me because of the fact, as you're saying, connects us to the human narrative. And one of the t- top ones or one of the up there is uh, visiting or, or being witness to or, or witnessing Auschwitz, the center, to be able to appreciate the kind of gravity of humanity and the, the, the dark side of humanity, be able to appreciate the, the struggles and, and appreciate w- what happened there so that we can, we can prevent it from happening again. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you don't need a single drop of Jewish blood for exactly. that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, it's a funny thing. You know, we we're talking about movies earlier. And of course, movies are a great uh, passion of mine. You know, growing up in a little farm town where there was nothing else to do, you latch on to old classic movies very early in life. Yeah. Um, Exodus mm. uh, with uh, Paul Newman. Now, I, you know, full disclosure, I do have a lot of Jewish background in my family. Yeah. Uh, but again, even if I didn't, I don't think it would matter. There is a scene where the British general, uh, played by the great uh, Sir Ralph Richardson, one of the great British character actors, uh, there is a rumor around you know the community that he is Jewish mm. because unlike all of the other British officers there, you know he's kind to the Jewish refugees. And when he reveals to the leading character that he's not Jewish at all and the lead is surprised, he says – you know, you have said, how can I as a Jew allow this to happen to other Jews? But I put it to you this way. How can anyone allow it to happen? Yeah. How can you allow this to happen to other people? Why do you have to share that, you know, common background? Isn't being a person enough? Uh, now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He doesn't say it exactly yeah, yeah. that way in the movie, but you get the idea. It's, and it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, I say with with all respect in the world to the various activists, you know, uh, causes out there, enough with this my people and your people business. Let's all get together. You know, I, I know it sounds very cliche when I say it that way. You know, <laughs> Come on and love one another. Right now. But but there it is. I mean, there's a reason why it was written that way. You know, uh, how does one human being allow these things to happen to another human being? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So thinking about, uh, you know, our, how we, we identify, what we identify with, and we, sh- we should always identify with the essential nature of being human. Absolutely. You know, our, our being image is a living being in this world so that we can have empathy even for, you know, animals and, and all this kind of stuff. So that being a living being who's searching for, you know, what are we searching, what are we all commonly searching for, which is happiness or, or, or some kind of good state of mind where it's chasing after these happiness kind of joy and, and fulfillment and self-actualization and, we want to be able to pursue our pursuit of happiness and allow others to pursue them as well. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you came up with exactly the phrase that I was thinking of. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, some very flawed but basically wise people said, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Their, their flaws aside, uh-huh. I do think that those three concepts are pretty good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think we have to return to the basics of uh, of our as a country, to return to the basics of what makes us unique in this world, what, what the, the founding vision of this country was, so that then we can then move forward uh, in a way that is inclusive, in the way that is um, embracing of our differences, yeah. And uh, even the, and people tend to think of the founding fathers as like you know a monolith, but there, there was lots of disagreement within them. And we, understanding that they had a shared vision of uh, a structure that would allow for these disagreements to happen uh, productively, and that we could have dis- different points of view, we could have differences of opinion, and that we have a structure which will contain it. Absolutely, yeah. I I do think uh, again not ignoring their faults, uh, which yeah. were many, yeah, uh, and which are always uh, worth highlighting. But I do think that part of the genius of the founders was they recognized that the nation would outlive them and, Mm. you know, making the Constitution amendable and things like that, uh, amendable in ways that they themselves could not foresee and that they understood they could not foresee. That was brilliant. You know, you know, make make it flexible, make it malleable. And they did that. And I think that was pretty smart. So thinking about your own process, I'm going to go back to one of the questions uh, um, that we were talking about in the pre-interview questions. Like, um, so what experiences do you have? Well, actually, I'll go to what's the threshold, speak philosophy, or one speak work changed your view of the world? Uh, you mentioned uh, a film version of Billy Budd. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Billy Budd, the the movie version of Billy Budd. You know, of course, the novels by Herman Melville, mm. uh, a great New Yorker. Uh, and there was a movie version in 1962 directed by Sir Peter Ustinov. It was the film debut of uh, the great British actor Terence Stamp. Stamp is still alive, still making Mm. films, Uh, but he was like 20 years old or barely over 20 years old uh, when he played the title role in Billy Budd, and it is, in my opinion, one of the rare examples of a movie that is better than the book, and I know there are people who fight me on that, and that's fine, but but to my mind, it's one of those rare occasions of a movie that actually surpasses the book because I think that some of the dialogue in the film actually delves deeper, uh, that was a terrible sentence, delves more deeply into the psychology of the characters than the book does. I think Melville goes a little too heavily into irrelevant physical descriptions uh, in the book, whereas, you know, obviously on film, that's taken care of in a split second. But the genius of Billy Budd was, for me, that it, it taught me that issues of right and wrong, all these moralities we're discussing, aren't always necessarily as cut and dried as uh, we might want them to be, and as in a perfect world, they would be. And, you know, the, I'm trying to think of how to say it without spoiling it too much for those who might not have either read it or seen it, but, you know, the officers of this, you know, British naval ship in the Napoleonic Wars have to make a very painful decision and a very difficult moral decision uh, that it's one of those ultimate damned if you do, damned if you don't decisions where if you go one way, you betray this side of your conscience. And if you go the other way, you betray that side of your conscience. And there is no way of being correct. And I think I was about 13 years old or so when I saw it. And this blew my mind. Because in those days, 
I was very self-righteous. And in some ways, I probably still am. But, you know, my thought was, you know, this is right and this is wrong and never the twain shall meet. And Billy Budd was the first example I had of the fact that human beings are really complex creatures. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And speaking of being complex, what is some of the um, what is one of the most important failures that you learned from that you think you grew from or you think you learned from? Uh, what is something that happened where things didn't go the way you wanted to, but then you um, uh, were able to come back and, and learn something from it? Good heavens, that's an excellent question. Um, when, when I think of failures of my own that I learned from and grew from. <laughs> I probably think of like embarrassing teenage romantic failures, <laughs> yeah. uh, d- discovering that the real world doesn't play out like a love scene in the movie. There is no fade out at the end of a big dramatic, you know, scene and that the lady is not going to follow your script. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think that led to a lot of growing up on my part. And it's I I think that in general, um, although not everyone might articulate it the way I just did. That probably speaks to a lot of the sexual relations uh, controversies around today. Mm. You know, sexual harassment, uh, you know, questions of what determines assault. You know, that that's a, a great phrase um, that, again, I like to think, I hope, I, I try to be empathetic about this regardless, but as the father of a daughter, I certainly think about it, uh, you know, and I, I say it that way because I'm not trying to say that if I didn't have a daughter, I wouldn't think this way, but it's, you know, a very immediate thing for me. Uh, I love that phrase, anything shy of an eager, enthusiastic yes counts as a no. Mm. And that is the sort of thing that, you know, as a kid, because I thought, you know, real romance should play out like it does in the movies and it doesn't. I didn't realize that and understand that. I suspect that's probably true on some level for a lot of men mm. who are now having a lot of trouble catching up. And I say that not to excuse them in any way, but simply to say, I think I see an ingredient in where the problem is Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, because I remember it. And part of the difference becomes, you know, I outgrew it. Other people need to also. And, you know, now I sound like I'm, you know, patting myself on the back. I'm sure there are many contexts in which I have plenty more growing to do. But in this particular case, you know, I can look back and say, God, I was stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think definitely. I think that the relationship in, in uh, between men and women and the relationship and the idea of like feminism as being like a way to examine where the toxicities are and examine that and be able to understand that. I think all men can gain a lot from that kind of close examination of understanding their own psyche and understanding, you know, at least in my own process as well, understanding where things come from. One parable that uh, was told to me that was conveyed to me that I've heard before is that, uh, you know, some town was uh, finding some babies floating down the river and they were building like, um, you know, they were building like uh, they're questioning, well, where did the baby come from and all this kind of thing. And they're, they're building like towns and, and support centers to help the babies. But then one person was like, well, where did the baby come from? What is the source of this, you know, conflict rather than just addressing the immediate concern of taking care of the babies, understanding where the babies come from, where what was going up the river to investigate was the source of this, um, 
rather than just immediately taking care of the immediate problem, but finding the source. You know? Sure. Although yeah. I'm sure you'll agree that this is not, or at least shouldn't be an either or scenario. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want to be so distracted by the curiosity about the source that I forget to take care of oh, the no, baby yeah. who needs the help right now. Exactly. Uh, exactly yeah. And that's very important. You know, when we think about these issues, of course, you know, another um, phrase that you hear a lot in the dialogue is, you know, a, a woman will make a statement uh, about a behavior that she has either experienced or witnessed. And a man will say, I never did any such thing. And then the, the big uh, response is, this is not about you. Yeah. And it's important to remember that, that if something, and that goes back to empathy and imagination. If you personally are not guilty of something, or if you personally have never witnessed something, that doesn't mean that nobody has. Yeah. You know, the world is large and we want to remember that. Also, going back to what you asked me about, uh, you know, how perspectives change. And I said, well, you're never thinking about it at the time. Stop and think about it for a minute. There have been plenty of times in the course of this type of dialogue that my first instinct has been to say, I never. And then I stop. And I think about some stupid episode from when I was a teenager and I think, oh, God, what have I done? Uh And of course, you acknowledge, again, acknowledge the elephant in the room. And then you proceed to not do that anymore. And you do better. And you hopefully help spread the word. Uh, You know, but you can't solve a problem without facing it. And that includes within yourself. And we all know that's hard. You know, I am not saying that this is easy. I never promised that it was, you know, but we have to acknowledge that when I was a kid, I loved Looney Tunes. And one of my favorite characters was Pepe Le Pew. Uh, I thought he was so romantic. uh, And I look at Pepe Le Pew now and I think, oh, God. What you know, all of the things that I failed to notice are now coming to light, and that's been happening a lot. I I look at you know I'm a, I'm a big opera lover. I love classical music, and I love sharing with my daughter a lot of my favorite you know old Broadway musicals and operas and operettas. And there is a classic movie from the 1950s called The Student Prince. It's based on an operetta about a royal prince, you know, being a student in Heidelberg. And he falls in love with a barmaid. And, of course, it's the whole, you know, royalty versus common, et cetera, et cetera. And I will still say, I mean, I can say objectively that Sigmund Romberg wrote some of the most beautiful music ever written for this operetta. There's a gorgeous serenade. There's a raucous drinking song. There's a lot of really cool stuff. But when I'm showing the movie... To my daughter, today, it was 2018, I think, when we watched it. I'm like, I never realized that the sexual politics of this story, you know, they make Gloria Steinem look backward. I I said that wrong, but, you know, it was so insanely backward in ways that I had not realized And I like to think that I have enough objectivity that I can still enjoy the music while recognizing that the story for which the music was written is no good. You know, it's still beautiful. I mean, there's very soaring melodies and no way around that. But happily, I'm very proud to say my daughter, who was like 12 or so when we watched it, figured it out right away. Yeah. You know, and because what's part of the point is, you know, you watch these things together and then you talk about it. 
And I'm very happy that she picks up on things, not just in that context, but in general. We just, she was studying World War I in her uh, history class. She's now a sophomore in high school. She's studying World War I. And I showed her the movie Paths of Glory with Kirk Douglas, whom we just lost at the age of 103. Uh, he had quite a life. Uh, Kirk Douglas of Spartacus fame uh, was in this brilliant, brilliant World War I movie called Paths of Glory. And there were two major bad guys. You know, two power-hungry generals who, for whom, you know, the soldiers are just, you know, roadblocks on their own promotion, um, you know, journeys. And one of them is an obvious monster, and the other hides his evil underneath this veneer of good manners and good taste and, you know, the best champagne and, oh, won't you sit down, Colonel, and all of that. And when I was a teenager and saw this movie for the first time— I didn't get it. I did not recognize that the polite one was actually worse Mm. Uh, because it wasn't sufficiently obvious for me. My daughter figured it out right away. So I was very proud of her. I'm like, yeah, you're smarter than I was. This is good. Um, And it's an important thing to remember. I mean, you see the, the fun villains like that, you know, characters like, you know, the Tim Roth character and Rob Roy. And you think having that kind of sophistication, having that kind of education having that kind of privilege. It gives you less of an excuse because you ought to be educated enough to know better. You know, you look at characters like, you know, Ray Fiennes and Schindler's List, you know, the guy who gets off on shooting Jews from his balcony at the concentration camp. Mm. And you think, well, this guy's just an animal. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's a bad guy, but he doesn't have enough human decency to know what kind of ethical code he's violating, as opposed to, say, the Michael Moriarty character in the TV miniseries Holocaust, which, by the way, if you've never seen, see it. It's it's devastating, but brilliant. You know, and he's the one who says, no, I don't hate anyone. I, I'm just looking for a job. And when he has to shoot someone in the head, you can see how much he hates it, but it doesn't stop him. Mm. And that's the important thing. This is a guy who clearly knows the difference between right and wrong and chooses wrong, Mm. you know, and that's what makes him worse. The fact that he seems better is precisely what makes him worse because he knows the difference. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to think about like when you think about characters and analyzing them, understanding, breaking it down into, especially villains, breaking it down into, well, what exactly, how does that psychology work and as well as what what can i learn from it and and it's not it's not always about the character it's always also about what inside of us inside of us as i think a theme of this episode we were talking about is how what tensions or what seeds in us uh the potential to become that and how can we cut cut them off of the source you know how can we cut off how can we learn from that and and uh you know allow us to ripen another way or go another way, go and choose another direction. And and you yeah. need to be vigilant about vigilant, it because yeah. we all have that capacity. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, the, the, the fact that we were capable of it at a time when we didn't understand, you know, once we do understand, we need to do something about it. It's not enough to just understand. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, I don't claim that that's easy. It, it hasn't been easy for me, yeah. uh, but I do it. Because what else am I going to do? I I like being able to look in the mirror without wishing to break the glass. Mm. You know, I really appreciate this conversation. I think that it's important also to recognize that it's easy to. Well, two things are going on in my mind. One, one, it's easy to 
kind of get up on a high horse and be like, oh, you know, I've passed all that. I don't think, I don't think this is what you're saying, but I'm saying in general. Uh, in general, it's easy to get up on a high horse and say, like, oh, I've passed all that. But then recognizing and having compassion for others who, who have still on that journey. Absolutely. And still on the process and that you could be the breaking point for them to be able to help them to, to get where you're at. One. And two, it's like uh, thinking, oh, oh, poor, so having too much pity for people, thinking, oh, poor guy or poor woman or poor whatever, you know, went through that experience. I'm so much better, you know. Again, putting that dichotomy of you as being like past it and and being commentary on life as though it's a, it's a game we're watching, not engaged with. You right? can end up falling into yeah, your own trap. Fall, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yes, yes, and yes. Um, It's a funny thing. Uh, you know, here we are on radio and you hear people talk about the media. Yeah. And I used to write a weekly column, um, the only sport, I'm not particularly into sports, but what the only sport that I uh, have ever followed regularly was boxing. Uh, many, many pounds ago, I used oh, to work out at a boxing uh, gym and uh, I used to watch boxing with my dad. And so I wrote a column for a website called BoxingPulse.net uh, called Famous Fighter of the Week. And it was everyone from, you know, like 18th century, you know, the people who invented the modern sport as we know today, to people who are fighting today. And two guys I wrote about had very similar backgrounds in many ways. One was Sonny Liston, and then the other was Mike Tyson. And Liston, of course, is most famous now. And this was what made me want to write about him. You know, here was a guy who was heavyweight champion for two years and beat Floyd Patterson twice and was known as the Big Bear. None of that matters because the only thing anyone remembers him for is being the guy flat on his back underneath Muhammad Ali in that famous first round, first minute. And I thought that's kind of sad. Yeah. So once I started doing research on him, I got less sad because I decided I had no sympathy for him. Uh, he had been a thief. He had learned to box in prison. You know, he was not a nice guy. He was tied in. It looked like, you know, apparently tied in with a mob. Um that famous photograph, it looks like he threw the fight. There's some controversy on that. You know, there's a lot of discussion. And I found myself having very little sympathy for him. And Mike Tyson, well, I grew up watching Mike Tyson. Yeah. And so although he, he had also been a thief, he had learned to fight in, in juvie. Uh, you know, he, you know, there was, of course, the rape case afterwards. Then he became a monster. He's biting people's ears and stuff like this. Yeah. Like, And my feelings about him were, Oh, this guy had such demons. Let's hope he pulls himself together. So basically, almost the same biography and a completely different perspective on my part. And it taught me something important about writing history and writing news was that anyone, including me, is capable of spin. Yeah. Whether we want you know to admit that to ourselves or not, because each one of these guys was an asshole, but Tyson was our asshole. Uh -huh. you know? And that made the difference to my writing. And it taught me something very important about myself and about what even the people who, you know, try to be objective and, and do their best are capable of because at the end of the day, everyone has perspective. Mm. And and that was mine. So that was a very important lesson to me. Thank you. Thank you. That was really interesting. I think it's really interesting to think about how we the narrative, we, the stories we tell ourselves, uh, I'm kind of essentializing a little bit here, but also more broadly speaking, the stories we tell ourselves about others, the stories we're telling ourselves about ourselves, and uh, and how we can, uh, sometimes there's, there's that anomaly that something comes up and we're like, does that destabilize the whole narrative? And what's really the, and, and how, does it, how does it, what does it reveal? You know, the, I think in our process, when something comes up that is uh, anomalous to, what what the narrative we're telling about ourselves or about others is then we think of so what does that reveal about 
me, about us, about what how we see the world and the world itself. So, for example, in, in your your uh, analogy or in your story, it's like uh, making that connection between these two people that many people would not make. You know, they would be like, oh, you know, that's just they would think of it as being that's just the way things are. But you're making that connection. You're saying, oh, you know, well, what does that reveal about me? And what does that reveal about my process and how I see the world? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. Thank and, you. And we don't necessarily get those answers right away. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, be that's patient. that's a, a learning process as well. Yeah. We'd be patient with ourselves and our process yeah. and understand that, you know, everything is just, uh, you know, as it happens. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying about, you know, not getting on your high horse and thinking, well, I'm past that. It's like, Sure, that might be my immediate reaction to the lessons I've learned, but it doesn't happen all at once. I mm. think, oh, yes, I was really stupid, and that means I'm capable of being stupid, and yeah. so I need to watch myself, and I need to be aware of it. Uh, but I do also think, you know, my mother always said to me, you know, a problem pa- faced is a problem half solved. Thank you. And so I think being aware helps a lot. It's a major part of the battle. It's not everything, but it's a great starting spot. Thank you. Thank you. So now, um, I know we talked a little bit earlier about you reading or reciting a poem. Yeah, Would okay. Like so yeah, uh, tell I'd us be a delighted about to. The- well, uh, poetry is a great love of mine. Um, I'm on the board at the Poetry Society of New York. Uh, we are a very fun group. Uh, they produce the Poetry Fest on Governor's Island every summer, uh, which is where I first met you. Thank uh, you. And oh, great fun and great work. And it's, you know, poetry from classical poetry to, to contemporary has been a major part of my life since I was a very small child. My father used to read bedtime poems instead of bedtime stories uh, to my brother and me. And, you know, we were able to recite all of, you know, Owl and the Pussycat before we knew how to read. Uh, so I've done some writing. I'm not primarily a writer. I'm primarily a reader. Uh, my blog, poetscorner.blog, uh, is a celebration of the history of the written word uh, from poets as old as Sappho and Homer uh, to poets as contemporary as you know, Maya Angelou and uh, plenty of in between. But I have done some writing, and uh, it hadn't occurred to me until I arrived uh, here at the studio uh-huh. that I might be asked to do some poetry. So I thought, well, is there anything that I have memorized since I didn't bring anything with me? And there is one. Uh, and this is a piece that I uh, wrote in sort of a Victorian style called uh, I Was There the Day the War Was Won. They'll never teach you this in school, my lad, so listen well. I've come straight from the field at Waterloo. Full half my barracks mates are gone to heaven or to hell, as many soldiers there are bound to do. Your history teacher will declare the deaths my comrades died a grand and glorious service to the crown. He will bid your generation join the army, fight with pride, while he safely sips his tea in Chestertown. Your Oxford lecturers will drill it through your head, my son. We were fearless, stout, and bold that noble day. But don't forget that I was there the day the war was won, and I remember it a different way. I remember scores of men and boys besmeared in soot and mud, and you nigh could see the anguish in the air, and each grew sickly at the smell of one another's blood. Let your history books record that, if they dare. Beside a battle lost, the saddest things a battle won, and lo, I heard from deep within their tents, 
the moan of men who slowly pay the debt they owe the gun, whose names will ne'er be carved on monuments. The dwarfish Corsican was beaten back, praise God tis so, and with our victory a peace was made. But every school and university to which you go will conveniently forget a price was paid. But I will not forget, just thank God for my every breath, and be grateful every day I see the sun. I will not call it sweet to serve my country with my death, for I was there the day the war was won. Thank you, thank you, bro. Thank you. Very nice. I really liked your reading of it, your rendition of it, and it was very beautiful, very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it is, I appreciate, not fashionable today in uh, 2020. Uh, to write with such clipped meters and rhymes as, you know, people like Tennyson and Kipling did. And that's precisely why I like to do it, because I am a bit of a natural rebel that way. I, yeah. I always, you know, go with whatever people aren't doing these days. Yeah. Um, and it's very fun. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I do think that experimentation is important. And I think at the same time, you know, knowing where we came from is important. I think I said something earlier about that, you know, knowing where you came from tells you something about where you're going. Um there's an old saying, know the rules before you break them. Yeah. And I think that's important. I like the idea of knowing how to work in a classical style so that I can decide for myself whether or not I want to reject the classical style or no, as opposed to simply never taking the trouble and deciding I rejected it because that's the easy way. Uh, and I say that with no particular judgment towards any other poets. Uh, but you do see that sort of thing a lot where people will simply write a diary entry and say it's a poem. And I'm like, Ugh. I tend to think of it as a slightly less default genre than that. <laughs> no, very good. Very good. I think it's true that we, as writers, uh, people think of it as craft as well as like a cathartic, but also as craft. But, you know, thinking about how we can uh, work within forms, work with forms. And, and even when we're not using forms, we're drawing from the energy of form. Exactly. So not not can, using forms should be a conscious okay, choice. Yeah. It shouldn't be because we don't know how to use forms. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. There was, I don't remember what the article was. There was an interesting advice article about writing where someone discussed um, formal training versus not formal training. So, you know, should someone, you know, take courses in writing or should they just go ahead and write? And the author of the article said, if people talk that way about airplane manufacture, we'd have uh -huh. 747s plummeting from the sky every five uh -huh. minutes. Yeah. Now, granted, the consequences of bad writing might not be quite as high as the consequences yeah. of bad airplane manufacture, but I appreciated where the lady was coming from. Yeah, no, that's good. It's good to think about and think about like that writing is a communal form that, you know, uh, when we start to publish and we start to go out there in the community, uh, we want to be able to establish a communication. So we want to have effective communications, just like any other kind of writing, poetry and, and creative writing follows certain norms and certain things that we should be aware of, even if we're breaking them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now Ready for Brooklyn, this is Ready for Brooklyn, the Truth to Power show. I have a few announcements quickly to make or a few plugs to make. Uh, you're listening to Ready for Brooklyn, independent listener supported media. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So every dollar helps us to continue to stay on air, support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Please support the monthly pledge or one time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Or you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash shoot to power. 
and sponsor this particular show. Uh, if you're listening to uh, RFP when you're in front of your computer and you'd like to change it up, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available at the respective Play stores. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway in May. This May, Radio for Brooklyn turns five years old. We need to raise 25000 so we can continue to bring you commercial free independent media for the next five years. Please, uh, because we think raising money should be fun, each month we'll be bringing listeners fun challenges and some great prizes. This month's challenge is a quiz to find out how well you know Bushwick. The top five scores will win a limited edition 5th anniversary t-shirt. Please enter Truth to Power Show as your favorite show and taking the quiz, and I'll get a prize as well. You can take the quiz and make a donation or find out more at radioforbrooklyn.org slash drive to five. You can also dial um, 718-673-8201 to give us a message letting us know why you love RFP or to wish us a happy birthday. Your message may be played on air. Thank you. So um, we're going to spend next few minutes listening to some classic uh, New York songs. Uh, you picked a theme from New York, New York. I picked New York State of Mind. Uh, we'll play both of them, hopefully, if we have time. Uh, I think I'll start with um, theme from New York, New York. and I mean, I'll start with uh, New York State of Mind, and then we'll go into, this is more of a lead-in. And then we'll go into... Uh, New York, New York, played by the same rendition by Frank Sinatra. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. Let me just get this uh, thing out. And remember, you can listen to the Truth to Power show every Monday at 8 a.m. And it'll be broadcast on Thursday at 9 a.m. on Radio for Brooklyn. Thank you so much, guys.
I'm in a New York 